save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to look at your neighbor and just say, today we break loose. I want to talk to you We're in our series, uh, Living Beyond Ourselves, Living Beyond Yourself. We're talking about breaking the chains of sin today. Author Conan Doyle, creator of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, once found great humor in a practical joke that he played on 12 of his famous friends. Each of these men were virtuous and highly respected. For the joke, Conan Doyle sent every one of them the same telegram. Fly at once. All is discovered. Within 24 hours, the dozen men of noble reputation had taken a trip out of the country. <laughs> no matter how noble our reputation is, we all have things for which we are ashamed and no, hope nobody ever finds out about. The only lasting solution to a guilty conscience is the forgiveness of Almighty God Himself. In our next few moments together, we're going to deal with our failures. Sin is an obvious failure for us. What God would hope is not that we would dwell on our failures, but rather that we'd learn from them. In fact, before I become too buried in guilt, I'd, I'd like to keep this story in mind. You may have heard it before, told in different ways, but uh, it's a great story. A Louisiana farmer's favorite mule fell into a well, and after studying the situation, the farmer came to the conclusion that he couldn't pull the mule out, so he might as well bury him. That would be the humane thing to do. So he got a truckload of dirt, backed it up to the well, and he dumped the dirt on top of the mule at the bottom of the well. But when the dirt hit the mule, he started snorting and tramping. And as he tramped, it began to work itself up to the top of the dirt. So the, father con uh, the, the farmer continued to uh, pour dirt in the well until the mule snorted and tramped its way all the way to the top. It then walked out a dirtier but wiser mule. <laughs> what was intended to bury that mule turned out to be its salvation. Being stuck in a deep well of sin and its consequences can be a terrible experience. But I want to give you four things this morning that can help us as we break the chains of sin. First of all, I want you to know that sin has a destructive power. Part of the beauty of Romans 8, and that's where we'll be this morning in Romans 8, comes from the position in Paul's letter where Romans 8 appears. It's, it's in that preceding chapter that Paul takes a look at his own life, his own shortcomings, and he writes this in chapter 7 and verse 15. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Then jump down to verse 18. <clears throat> for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing is of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And then jump down to verse 24 where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? 
And of course, he finishes by saying, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He ends the letter in a way that if that was the last thing he wrote, we'd be pretty depressed. But the good news is he didn't finish the letter after chapter 7. The story told of a major move that was set to take place inside the halls of a Fortune 500 company. It was an unheard of move, but the company was ready to promote this 38-year-old vice president to president. The young man was a very impressive businessman. He had wooed and he had awed the board of directors. And when he completed that final interview process, the board broke for lunch with plans to offer this man this prestigious position. The young man went to lunch alone that day and was intentionally followed by several of the board members who happened to stand in the line behind him. Naturally, they were watching him closely, filled with pride and excitement about the coming announcement. Just then, everything changed. Because when the young man came to the bread section, he placed two three-cent butter patties on his tray and nonchalantly covered them with his napkin. When he paid for his meal... He did not pay for the butter patties. An hour later, a room that should have been filled with joy was instead marked by anger. And instead of being promoted to president, the young man with that promising future was fired. All for six cents worth of butter. The smallest of our sins is costly. Far more costly than any of us have ever imagined. But we can be thankful that Paul turned his attention away from his own sin in chapter 7 and back on to the one who had set him free beginning in chapter 8. So we see that sin has a destructive power, but secondly, I want you to understand that God has broken that power of sin. Look what he says in verse 1. He says that God has already set us free from the law of sin and death. He said there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The condition being you've got to be in Christ. If you're not in Christ Jesus, there's no hope for you. No hope for any of us. And so while he couldn't beat the sin that had hounded him, God did by sending his own son beat it to death and then to life. It's coming from chapter 7, a man that battling sin, often lost battles, to a chapter that says there's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. Man, I'm glad to hear that, aren't you? God has already done the hard work. He's tackled the problem of sin, did it at the cross. The cross defeated sin. Satan's greatest threat to any of us is a Permanent separation from God because of our own sin. Satan sets the trap, hopes we'll fall into it, and we oftentimes do. But when Jesus gave his life for the sake of sinners, the ultimate power of sin was defeated once and for all. Romans 3.23 is a reminder. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love the English language. But, (laughs) 
But there's hope. There's hope. Hope if we'll accept God's gift of grace and mercy. Kevin Miller shared a story while visiting with friends Tim and Jill Jones. He watched their hamster, Hammy, in his little cage. Hammy has a warm nest of cedar shavings to curl up in, a water bottle to drink from, and best of all, a wheel that he can turn, uh, run inside of. He has everything a hamster could want or need. But Hammy refuses to run inside his running wheel. Instead, he has come up with what he thinks is a better idea. Hammy climbs on top of the wheel, turns over on his back, and stretches out. Gradually, the wheel starts to turn, and Hammy's entire body rolls with it. Head first. The wheel picks up speed and spins faster and faster until clunk. Hammy's head hits the bottom of the cage. <laughs> Hammy gets up, shakes himself off, apparently dazed from the crashing of the head into the bottom of his cage. But you know what Hammy does, don't you? Climbs right back up on top of that wheel, turns over, stretches out, and is ready for the next run. Why would a hamster who has everything he needs disregard the wheel's proper use and do something that only hurts himself? And why even after that would we do it again and again and again and again? Probably the bigger question is, why do we do that? Or maybe as, as Dr. Phil would say, how's that working out for you? Tom Watson Sr., the man who founded IBM. You can only imagine the money of investments and experiments that this man and this multi-billion dollar company had made through the years. Years ago, when a million dollars still meant a million dollars, he had a top junior executive who spent $12 million of the company's money on a venture that failed. The executive put his resignation on Tom Watson Sr.'s desk, and he said, I'm sure you want my resignation. Watson roared back at him. He said, no, I don't want your resignation. I've just spent $12 million educating you. I want you to go to work. God won't accept your resignation. Instead, he'll accept your failures as part of the investment that he's made in you. The investment that he's made in each of us. And the second point of this message is the workroom that requires the most sweat and toil is found here. The part of your game plan is to know that it can be done. Sin doesn't have the power to hold you prisoner. God has broken the chains. It's what Jesus had in mind when He cried those last words on the cross. It is finished. There is the destructive power of sin, but the best news of all is that God has broken the sin, which leads me to my third point, and that is refuse the power of sin. Refuse it. In Romans 8, verses 5 through 8, we find this. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't do it. Can't do it. The mind set on what is sinful, on our sinful nature, 
desires to live by that sinful nature. But if you will set your mind on things of the Spirit of God, then you will begin to live by the things of the Spirit of God. Amen? One mindset leads to hostility with God, and the other leads to peace with God. It's the same word picture that the psalmist uses in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join the, a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Day and night. You meditate on the Word of God, then you're going to delight yourself and you're going to delight God because He's going to love what He's hearing you talk about. But a man who doesn't control his mind will slow First to a walk with the counsel of the wicked. Then he will stand in the way of sinners. And finally he will sit in the seat of mockers. We should be running a good race for Jesus. Not even slowing to a walk. James says it this way in chapter 1 beginning at verse 13. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin's fully grown, it gives birth to death. If you go backwards through, that, through those steps, from death to sin, from sin to the birth of sin, from the birth of sin to the desire to sin, you'll come to the point of your own evil desires. Isn't that fun? If at that point we take hold of the mind of Christ, we can break the progressive chain and stop that destructive cycle. Paul says the key to set our minds on what, on what the Spirit desires. And that's not a bad thing. The tempter would have us think that we've just missed out on some great experience, that God has actually punished us for, leaving a life, for living a life of sin. But I want you to picture this. When a man and a woman fall in love and get married, they automatically stop some practices. And they start others. For instance, both the husband and the wife stop dating other people. Or, well, they should. <laughs> but they normally do, don't they? Uh, at least for a little while. And they start enjoying the companionship of that marriage. That's what God wants, isn't it? God wants you to enjoy the husband. I'm telling you, he knew what he's doing when he put men and women. When he made women and put her with men, he knew exactly what he was doing. I think, that's, I think it's a great plan, don't you? It's a wonderful plan. I, I've been around my brothers. I don't want to spend any time with them more than I have to. I used to have to share a bed with one of them. I slept on the floor most of the time. But I'm telling you, there's something special about that married relationship. Paul tells it this way in Romans 12, in verse 2. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, you know the end of that, by the renewing of your mind. Your transformed mind will make all the difference when it comes to enjoying or despising your walk with Jesus Christ. The power to break free from the chains of sin, the power that God has already provided, is already available to each of us right now. Ted Bundy was 
one of the worst mass murderers our country's ever known. But he told James Dobson that the road to prison for Ted Bundy had begun with a look at pornographic magazines. Porn was immediately addictive for him and it led to actions that God and society couldn't deal with. On the other hand, author and pastor Max Lucado took control of his mind and he walked away from a potential problem with alcoholism. Max said, I, came, I come from a family of alcoholism. Is there, if there's anything about this DNA stuff, I've got it. For more than 20 years, drinking wasn't a major issue for Max Lucado. But in 2001, it nearly became one. Lucado recalls, I lowered my guard a bit. One beer with a barbecue won't hurt. Then another time with Mexican food. And then a time or two with no food at all. One afternoon on his way to speak at a men's retreat, he began to plot. Where could I buy a beer and not be seen by anybody I know? He drove to an out-of-the-way convenience store, parked and waited until all the patrons left. He entered, bought a beer, and held it close to his side, and he hurried to his car. I felt a sense of conviction, Lucado remembered, because the night before I'd had a long talk with my oldest daughter about not covering things up. Max Lucado didn't drink that beer. Instead, he rolled down the window, threw it in a trash can. And ask God for forgiveness. He also decided to come clean with the elders of his church and about what had happened to him. And when I share, he said, when I shared with the elders, they just looked at me across the table and said, Satan is determined to get you for this right now. But we're going to cover this with prayer. But you've got to get alcohol out of your life. And I really mean... I really took that as coming from God. Even great men of faith have feet of clay. They'll never forgive it. Doesn't excuse it, it's just a reality. The destructive power of sin, God has broken the power of sin, refused that power of sin, and then, number four, live powerfully apart from sin. But how do you live? And how you live is the difference that it can make. In verse 12 of Romans 8, Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you, are, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. I want you to take the example of sexuality. A life of sexual sin can lead to embarrassment, physical and mental ramifications, financial penalties, and a guilt-ridden sense of spiritual bankruptcy. But on the other hand, a lifestyle that honors God and God's plan for sexuality and the rules that He has placed around it can enrich a marriage and create joy unspeakable. I tell all the couples that I work with prior to marriage, if you are having sex now, stop. And they always look at me very funny. And here's why I tell them to stop. You're here meeting with a preacher. <laughs> You're wanting to have your ceremony in a church. 
You're going to take vows before people and before Almighty God and say, I do. Then wouldn't it behoove you to do the things the way God wants them done? And if you've got the cart in front of the horse, get it behind the horse. That simple. Oh, and they look at me funny. But I tell them, you want a blessing? You want a marriage that's going to last forever? I'm just making a suggestion. Just making a suggestion. But when we do those things and do them the right way, do them God's way, what happens? Great things come, amen? Controlling your mind and making progress in the battle against temptation becomes evident as we manifest the spiritual fruit in our lives in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Somebody says, man, I, I don't know if I have the Spirit working in me. Well, there's nine of them. If you've got these things working, you've got the Spirit working. Well, I don't have all nine of them. Get one of them. <laughs> Get one of them. Rewards are worth the effort. Having a powerful way to live is worth the battle. And with all that concentration on sin, most of us are left with a, a bit of worry. Does God really have enough grace for a sinner like me? Because I, I may have stirred up some pots in your life. And you're like, whoa, preacher. Does God have enough to cover me? Author and pastor Lee Strobel tells a story shortly after the Korean War. A Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier, and she got pregnant. He went back to the United States, and she never saw him again. She gave birth to a little girl who looked different than the other Korean children. She had light-colored curly hair. And in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by the community. In fact, many women would kill their children because they didn't want them to face such rejection. This woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could until the rejection was just too much. She did something that probably nobody in this room could imagine ever doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. And this little girl, ruthlessly taunted by people, they called her the ugliest word in the Korean language, chuki, which means alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way that people were treating her. For two years, she lived in the streets until finally she made her way to an orphanage. And then one day, word came that a couple from America was coming to the orphanage to adopt a little boy. All the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little boy was going to have a hope. He was going to have a family. So this little girl spent the day cleaning up all the little boys and giving them baths and combing their hair and wondering which one would be adopted by this American couple. And the next day... The couple came, and this is what the girl was reported to say. It was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby. I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face. And I knew if, I, if they could that they would take the whole lot of us home with them. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. Now, let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body. I had lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But the man came over to me and began rattling away something in English, and I looked up at him. 
And he took his huge hand, he laid it on my face. What was he saying? Well, he was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. With all the scars and with all that was wrong with us. With all the terrible consequences that our sin has laid upon us, God still wants us. The cross is proof. And Romans 8 is that love letter. And the only unknown about the entire story is whether there are those here this morning who will accept His invitation. Father, I ask You this morning, that we have the courage to let you do a mighty work in us. That we have the courage to say yes to you and no to our sin, our selfishness. Thought of our scars. Thought of our mistakes. We can come to the foot of your cross and find you there. Would there be one today who would say, I need you, Jesus, to be my Savior? Would there be one today who would say, I've been living more for myself than I have for you, God? Time to change that. Would there be one today that says, I want to be a part of a church like this? Would you give them the courage to respond to that? But God, before we can respond to anything, we've got to be honest with ourselves. And in this room, this morning, I believe there's somebody, maybe even more than one, who could use a checkup and a check-in with you. So God, whatever you need to do in them, would you do it? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing our song of invitation. If God's moving in your heart, would you respond to him today in whatever way you, you need to?